Welcome to Season 3 of the Knowledge from the Couch Podcast. More history, more people, more of the stuff that got you here in the first place. Thanks for listening. One, two, three, jump! Hey guys, what is going on? Welcome to the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. I am Kyle. I am your host. We're still doing it. Still making it happen in season number three. Guys, what's going on? Thank you so much for those who listened to the premiere episode uh, last week, or I should say just a few days ago, because I was a little bit of a a, a late kind of fella getting that one out there. Um but yeah, guys, thank you so much for uh, indulging me and, and and joining me once again for the third season of the show. We got plenty more good things coming up down the line. Uh, today's episode, as we alluded to in the last episode on James Cook, today we're going to talk a little bit more uh, in depth on a subject that we just a teeny bit, little bit breached in the last episode now uh i'd always wanted to do one on james cook because he was always an 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 interesting uh figure uh for me to 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 read about and hear about and all that and what have you so it was fun to do a little bit of an episode on that gentleman but i always also found it interesting because when you think about these explorers and and, and and you know the things that they they go through you don't ever really think of uh you don't ever really think of their their i guess demise or the end of them so to speak and i was always just interested in going man james cook did all this bullshit only to be just killed in hawaii of all places just well i guess he's dead in hawaii now or he, as he called them the sandwich islands so Today, we are going to continue the logical course of action and look at the kingdom of Hawaii. Yes, those of you, uh, and myself included, most of us who are listening to this show are not old enough to remember when, well, none of us are old enough to remember when Hawaii was a kingdom, uh, first of all. And second of all, most of us aren't even old enough to remember when Hawaii wasn't a state in the Union. Hawaii is the 50th state to be admitted to the United States. So of the 50 stars, it is the 50th one, the most recent. Um, if, you know, if if things are going the way they go these days, it will probably now certainly become the second most recent when when the inevitable uh, Puerto Rico becoming a state, you know, as number 51 uh, will probably happen down the road. But it's been many, many decades since the United States has added a state to the union, and that state is Hawaii. But before Hawaii was a state. There were people there doing people's stuff. So today we're going to talk about, you know, as James Cook goes to Hawaii, he sort of introduces that particular set of islands, much like uh, any other set of islands or any other place on uh, Earth, to the 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 inevitable scourge of colonializing white people. And we're going to talk about how James Cook's first contact with Hawaii leads to this new sort of, you know, uh, kingdom of Hawaii, uh, immigrants who happen to live in the kingdom of Hawaii and what they end up doing uh, with their power there. It'll be an interesting episode. I I encourage you to stick around if you haven't really uh, heard much about Hawaiian history. You'll be very interested to uh, do this one and we will kind of wrap it up neatly in a bow and lead into, of course, next week's episode, which is going to be related in some way as well. So, guys, episode number 44, The Kingdom of Hawaii. Guys, Knowledge from the Couch Podcast. Stick with me.
All right, guys, so let's talk about something that doesn't really get talked about all that often because we just seem to sort of push it away uh, without giving it a second thought. But let's talk about the kingdom, not the state, not the territory, not the republic, none of that. Let's talk about the kingdom of Hawaii. So, you know, most of us are not, I mean, basically, I don't think anybody listening to this show, minus maybe one, two, three of you out there are, and I include myself in the ones not so, are are old enough to remember when when Hawaii was not a state of the Union of the United States. Uh, Hawaii didn't become a state until uh, 1959. So, you know, unless you were born before then and paid attention and, and remember the uh, the flag of the United States with less than 50 stars, pretty much everyone listening and most of the people that you know likely remember Hawaii only as this state of the United States. But don't you think it's a little bit strange how, you know, you have the contiguous United States, all the, the lower 48, so to speak, all the ones in, you know, on the United States shape of the map, and you have Alaska, and then you have Hawaii. Now, Alaska is kind of a, its own sort of weird situation that we may talk about here in the future, but Hawaii itself, stranded out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, so far away from basically everything, um, in a very strategic position, by the way, which which kind of feeds into why it is a state of the United States, but kind of, you know, way the hell out in the middle of the ocean, yet that thing is, you know, given the same, uh, I guess, benefits or, 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 or foresight or whatever you want to call it of, of, of you know, even Nebraska, you know, they're, they are both states in the United States, but it always seemed weird to me, you know, when I was growing up and saying, oh, you know, this is a state, this is a state. No, what is this island, These uh, this, this group of islands, you know, so far away? Why are they a state as well? And we are going to sort of talk about how, you know, how the, the, the origins of how that sort of came to be. Uh, we won't really talk about the state of Hawaii all that much, but I want to talk a little bit about the, 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 the new kingdom of Hawaii that started to sort of spring up uh, a few years after our, our, our guy, James Cook, who we talked about last week, made his way uh, uh, to them. And, and, and we're just going to sort of explore this little, this weird little kind of century or so titch in history that exists that not a lot of people really think about all that often. So the kingdom of Hawaii was originated in 1795 when uh, all of these large Hawaiian islands decided to unify and become a united kingdom of Hawaii, the islands being Hawaii, which is the big island, Oahu, Maui, Molokai, and Lanai uh, all come together to make this one large uh, Hawaiian, you know, kingdom. And the the main dynastic family that ruled this kingdom, is, uh, people have probably heard of, is the House of Kamehameha. So if you're a fucking nerd like me, then, then you hear that word and you uh, automatically think of, of, of Dragon Ball Z, and it's interesting because there's actually a very large uh, uh, Japanese expat population that live in the Hawaiian Islands. One of the uh, one of the the Hawaiian Islands, Hawaiian Islands, excuse me, are actually one of the largest um, Asian pluralities in 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 really anywhere in the United States. So there are a lot of expats from Japan that live there. Very likely the reason why that was part of you know a very popular anime of the 1980s and 1990s and i guess even today cuz they still make stuff about it but anyway beyond that tangent when this kingdom was was founded they were on very stable ground the hawaiian islands are in a very good position in the pacific ocean there is plenty of land you, you kind of look at them and go man those are really really tiny compared to a lot of things that you're that you're used to seeing but you know, for islands, they are very large and they have, you know, plenty for those people who are living there. And so this 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 kingdom was by no means uh, uh, this little tiny thing in the middle of nowhere. In fact, the population um, in 1780, before the uh, the establishment of the 1795 uh, unification and the kingdom of Hawaii, the population was well over half a million people. So a lot of people, even in the, uh, the the late 18th century, living in Hawaii at the time, taking advantage of of what the islands had to offer. 
and we're going to start to find out that a lot of these people who are among that great population statistic and will become a very growing minority of that statistic over the next hundred years are a bunch of uh, uh, immigrants and in particular uh, white people from, you know, various countries, the United Kingdom and uh, the United States uh, being very large into it because, I mean, everybody loves a tropical island. Everybody loves a tropical island. So, of course, you start to see these people move there to do what they're going to do. And very slowly but surely over the life of the kingdom of Hawaii, you're just going to start to see this drop drastically of native Hawaiian population. So as we talk about the kingdom of Hawaii, economic and demographic factors uh, in the 19th century kind of reshaped the way the island worked. Uh, under the original King Kamehameha, sandalwood started being traded to uh, China. So this ends up leading to the introduction of actual money on the island that is used on a worldwide scale and trade all between the islands. Um, as this trade started to pick up in 1848, the great Mahili was was promulgated by the king at the time, and this was a humongous uh, uh, shift in 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 you know the the holding of property in the distribution of wealth, and it really hit a lot of the native Hawaiians really hard. During the Great Mahili, they they instituted a formal sort of property rights to the land situation, and basically it was just this declaration by the king going, "All right, here's where." Here's where all the land is going to go. Here's who owns all of the land. And 98, 98% of the land was assigned to chiefs and nobles and elites on the island. And only 2% of it ended up going to the, the commoners that you know live there. Which, you know, when you go most places, the commoners are the vast majority of the people. You can't have... 100% of your population be elite because then, of course, no one at that point is elite. So most of the land, 98% of it, is going to the chiefs and the nobles. Sound familiar? It may sound a little bit like something that exists these days, but we won't go directly into that. None of this land also could be sold, only could be transferred through lineal descendants, so your kids, uh, and that's really the only way that you are going to be able to move your land around to different people. Um, for natives of the island, this was a, a an embodiment of why they were upset with you know this contact with the outside world, which, as we talked about Captain Cook last week, it's really kind of his fucking fault that a lot of people uh, who were not Native Hawaiians started to move and live and do the things that they do in Hawaii, and this led to, you know, the, the Kingdom of Hawaii being formed and then people sort of infiltrating the kingdom and the actual native population, people who are descendants of well before the Kingdom of Hawaii who had lived there for, for hundreds and hundreds of years were starting to decline rapidly without, you know, any sort of uh, say on their own part. In fact, by 1920, there were only 24,000 native Hawaiians left on the island, most of whom would live in remote villages in basically protest and uh, the way that they are being treated by the elite. One of the biggest reasons why this happened uh, was the American missionaries that were working in Hawaii converting most of the natives to Christianity. Uh, the missionaries and their children, just like we talked about the, the, the you know, lineal descendants moving land around, a lot of these missionaries ended up becoming those powerful elites in the 1850s. They were the ones that, you know, grabbed a lot of this land that was being just handed out by the monarchy to whomever was basically rich and powerful, leaving the less rich and less powerful behind in its wake. This provided then the chief advisors and cabinet members of the kings to be dominated by these, you know, these professionals and these merchant classes and these missionaries. All these people who kind of snaked their way into Hawaii 
you know, who were not natives ended up becoming some of the most powerful, you know, gentry of the island and worked their way up to be in these advisory positions for, you know, the 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 king or queen at the time. In in addition to these these uh these landholding elites kind of gaining power, they also brought a new style of agrarian economy for export to Hawaii, that being in the uh the sugar industry or the sugar trade. Now we know that sugar is a very uh labor intensive crop to harvest. Sugarcane is very difficult and needs a whole lot of people in his backbreaking type work. And it, it just tends to be something that grows very well in these tropical type climates. You'll see very similar stories in the Caribbean islands of the of the Americas, you know, a little bit on the other side of 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 land in the in the Atlantic and the Caribbean. Um, you see very similar stories with these uh, tropical islands and sugarcane just being one of those things that everybody loves fucking sugar. And, you know, sugar is in demand, but it's so goddamn hard to plant and harvest and everything that you need a lot of people. And this sugar thing did not, you know, uh, exclude Hawaii in its, you know, in, in, in an effort for these people to, you know, modernize uh, Hawaii's ec- economy, so to speak. And there was a lot of American money backing up these elites to build up the sugar industry in Hawaii. And very few of the natives in Hawaii were willing to work on these sugar plantations pretty much because they were like, hey, first you come and take our land and then you turn it into these sugar plantations. Like, fuck that. We're not going to work on these. This is stupid. Like, you took our shit and then you expect us to come and work for, for nothing and and do work for you. Well, fuck that. So a lot of, you know, like we were talking about before, a great deal of of Japanese expats and others living on the island. This is the time between 1850 and 1900 or so that about 200,000 or so contract laborers from China, Japan, uh, the Philippines and Portugal came to Hawaii under these sort of fixed term contracts where they would work on these plantations. And a lot of them would end up staying after the terms of their contract ran out. It, it was just another thing that sort of led foreigners to the shores of Hawaii and diluted the, the, the native population. It didn't help also that white people coming to Hawaii did the exact same thing that tends to happen basically everywhere that people come to it. And when you look at conquest type history, a lot of native Hawaiians suffered very badly at the hands of rampant disease that the native Hawaiian population didn't have any uh, any immunity to. Things like, you know, things like smallpox still, things like the flu, things like all these other diseases that they just didn't have on Hawaii were brought to them on Hawaii by these new people. And you can thank Captain Cook for opening the highway again for people to start coming to the island who were very different from the natives who lived there. And it's another huge reason why the native population started to take quite a dive from the late 1700s when the Kingdom of Hawaii was established until the late 1800s. And we'll get to that in just a second. Um, In 1839, an event called the French incident took place under the rule of Queen uh, Kahumanu. Oh, boy. It's going to be an oh boy episode with a lot of these pronunciations here. Uh, you know, they you, you think Hawaiian might not be a terribly complicated language because there are very there are less uh, vowels and in, in, in consonants than there are in, say, like the uh, the English language. But still, oh, my goodness, when you are not used to saying words in a foreign language and names in a foreign tongue, it can be very difficult. So bear with this uh, this uh, uncivilized white boy from the middle of, of America here as he tries to get his way through these names anyhow this queen who is the who is a uh, uh, uh the queen now after uh, Kamehameha the great had died she now takes the the throne of Hawaii declares catholicism illegal in Hawaii and in 1831 uh chiefs loyal to her forcibly deport these uh french catholic priests now the uh, a great deal of the french population is catholic and, you know, they just like all these other nations, you know, they like the British and the United States and others, they are sending people to Hawaii as well. So they just dump out 
these uh, French Catholic priests going, well, this is stupid. I'm Protestant, so get the hell out of here. This is shades of shades of the Reformation in Europe. This leads to uh, native Hawaiians who are converts to Catholicism as you know, part of the whole missionary work there, claiming to have been imprisoned and beaten and tortured after the expulsion of these Catholic priests. And this prejudice would then continue under uh, uh, this queen's successor. So in 1839, Captain Laplace, who is a, a French uh, frigate commander, sails to Hawaii under orders to, quote, destroy the malevolent impression which you find established to the detriment of the French name to rectify the erroneous opinion which has been created as to the power of France and to make it well understood that it would be to the advantage of the chiefs of those islands of the ocean to conduct themselves in such a manner as to not incur the wrath of France. You will exact, if necessary, with all the force that is yours to use, Jesus, complete reparation for the wrongs that have been committed and you will not quit those places until you have left, in all minds, a solid and lasting impression. Holy shit, they were not fucking around when it came to, I guess, getting revenge or, show. I guess, showing somebody who's boss. That's what the French wanted to do at this point. And he was given, Captain Laplace was given basically all reign of anything if he wanted to do whatever he wanted to do. It was going to be something drastic that was going to, I guess, exact, you know, revenge or rectification for these, 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 I guess, French expats or Catholics or whomever they thought. They just felt like they got slapped in the face, so they wanted to slap a little bit back. Under the threat of war, King Kamehameha III signed the Edict of Toleration on July 17th of 1839 and paid $20,000 in compensation for the deportation of the priests and the incarceration and torture of the converts, agreeing to Laplace's demands. The kingdom would proclaim, quote, that the Catholic worship be declared free throughout all the dominions subject to the king of the Sandwich Islands. The members of this religious faith shall enjoy in them the privileges granted to Protestants. So then at that point, the Roman Catholic Diocese of Honolulu returned unpersecuted, and as reparation, King Kamehameha III donated land for them to build a church upon. So this is sort of the beginning of the Hawaiian islands trying to exert, you know, their sovereignty and other sovereign states saying, hey, islands, fuck you. We're going to do what we want to and do this and that and push you around and do what we want. And it becomes a very sore, you know, subject. And, and it, it's, it's very difficult for the Hawaiians to deal with. A few years later, in 1843, Lord George Pollitt of the Royal Navy, now this is Britain again, of the Royal Navy warship, warship HMS Carriesfort, enters Honolulu Harbor and demands that King Kamehameha III, and this guy just gets all the shit, demands that he cede the islands to the British Crown. This guy wants to just say a straight-up takeover Hawaii under you know British control. Under the guns of the frigate, Kamehameha then surrenders to Pollitt on the Febu on February 25th, writing a letter to his people that says, Where are you, chiefs, people, and commons from my ancestors and people from foreign lands? Hear ye, I make known to you that I am in perplexity by reasons of difficulty into which I have been brought without cause. Therefore, I have given away the life of our land. And hear ye, but my rule over you, my people, and your privileges will continue for I have hope that the life of the land will be restored when my conduct is justified. Done at Honolulu, Oahu on the 25th day of February, Kamehameha Third. So, Dr. Jarrett Jude, a, a missionary who had become the Minister of Finance for the kingdom. There's another guy who's not from Hawaii, but somehow is in a, a position of power. Secretly arranged for uh, a, an American envoy from uh, be brought to the United States to France and to Britain to formally protest Paulette's actions of just coming in and trying to conquer some islands full of people that already have something going on. Uh, eventually, this does get to Paulette's commanding officer, who then arrives at Honolulu Harbor on July the 26th on the HMS Dublin, and Thomas basically slaps Paulette in the face and formally apologizes to King Kamehameha III for Paulette's actions, 
and restores Hawaiian sovereignty a few days later on July the 31st. This becomes uh, a sovereignty restoration day in Hawaii, uh, where King Kamehameha says, yay, we did it. The life, of, the life of the land is perpetuated in righteousness, which does actually end up becoming the motto of the future state of Hawaii, which we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. And so another drastic attempt for someone other than native Hawaiians to take over the kingdom of Hawaii. This kingdom is sort of just sort of sitting there fledgling, trying to get its bearings and act as a sovereign nation of the world. And all these assholes just keep sailing in saying, hey, what up? These islands are dope. They're ours now. And the Hawaiians are like, fuck that. Why are you trying to do this? I know I know this place is sweet, but why do you continue to try to take over all of our shit? So because of this, poor King Kamehameha III decides that he needs to dispatch delegations worldwide to try to, to really secure foreign recognition of the sovereignty of the Kingdom of Hawaii. Now, this is a huge thing even today. When you become a nation or you want to be a nation, this is like nation building 101. When you want to be a country, you have to gain recognition by other countries that say, hey, we are countries, and we recognize that you two are a country. That is kind of the way that you become, you know, sort of a, a, a recognized on the world scale, and it just makes things more more formally correct. Um, plenty of times there are people who, who go out there or, or groups of people who go to a place, take over small bits of land or even big bits of land, and go, hey, we've seceded from whatever, or we've, we've made this thing, and now we declare that we are a nation, and then places like, you know, in the United Nations or with, you know, the sovereignty of these uh, uh, fully established countries basically say, uh, no, you're not a country, we don't recognize you, and then that can really sort of ruin a foreign nation's uh, standing on the world stage and make it very impossible to ever really be a nation in the first place. So, Foreign nations recognizing others is a humongous part of establishing sovereignty. In fact, it's one of the huge reasons why the United States, uh, you know, as we talked about in the American Revolution uh, series about a month and a half ago or so, a big part of the United States, you know, not floundering hard was when they did end up winning that war against the British and establishing the United States that they were recognized by other nations as a sovereign country, and because of that, they are able to, you know, trade on a foreign scale, and other foreign powers basically recognize that, hey, this is a nation, these are its borders, and, you know, if we encroach on those borders, then we're going to be met with some sort of resistance, because, of course, it's not our place to do so. So, King Kamehameha dispatches a delegation to the United States, and he sends a delegation to Europe, to the various nations there, to secure the recognition of Hawaiian independence. This leads in 1843 to the Anglo-Franco po uh, Proclamation. Excuse me. On November 28th of 1843, at the Court of London, the British and French governments formally recognize Hawaiian independence. They say, "Quote: Her Majesty the Queen of the United Kingdom and Great Britain and Ireland, and His Majesty the King of France." Uh, taking into consideration the existence uh, in the Sandwich Islands, Hawaiian Islands, of a government capable of providing for the regularity of its relations with foreign nations, have thought it right to engage reciprocally to consider the Sandwich Islands as an independent state and never, never to take possession, neither directly or under the title of protectorate or under any other form, uh, uh, of the territory which they are composed, and it goes on a little bit after that. But basically, it's those two nations, France and Britain, saying, hey, we will never take you over. We will never occupy you. You will never be a territory. You will never be a protectorate. You'll never be any of this. You know, you will be independent. You are your own nation. Congratulations. We recognize you, the kingdom of Hawaii. Hawaii was the first non-European indigenous state whose independence was recognized by the major powers. The United States did decline at first to join with France and the United Kingdom in this statement, but John Tyler, president of the United States at the time, did verbally recognize Hawaiian independence. It took, though, until 19, or 1849 that the United States then joined them and formally recognized 
Hawaii's independence. November 20th then became uh, Hawaii's Independence Day, which became a national holiday to celebrate the recognition of Hawaii's independence. Then, as this happened, the Hawaiian kingdom started to enter into treaties with most major countries and established over 90 legations and consulates. So you can you can imagine at this time in the mid-1800s, you go to major cities across the world and you may see an embassy from the kingdom of Hawaii as its own separate sort of thing. That's kind of an interesting thought to have. But not all is well on the kingdom of Hawaii. In 1872, the dynastic rule of the Kamehameha family ends with the death of Kamehameha V. Upon his deathbed, he summoned High Chiefess Bernice Paui Bishop to declare his intentions of making her the heir to the throne with no uh, heirs of his own. Bernice then refused the crown, and Kamehameha V died without naming an heir. At this point, you can probably guess, just like with other nations of the world that have monarchies with dynastic rule, when a, a monarch, a king or a queen, dies without a, a proper, I guess, son or daughter type of heir, things get thrown into the fucking wind, and everybody just kind of sees what the fuck is going to happen. The refusal of Bishop to take the crown forces the legislation of Hawaii, of the, of the Kingdom of Hawaii, excuse me, to elect a new monarch. So this will be an actual sort of election instead of just a dynastic, you know, crowning of a new heir instead, which differs a little bit from, like, say, the way it works in the United Kingdom. There's always an heir to the crown in the United Kingdom. You just have to go down the list to eventually find it. But in Hawaii, there was no real way to do so or no you know, thinking to do so. So in 1872 to 1873, uh, several relatives of the Kamehameha line were nominated in this uh, in this election. And in a ceremonial popular vote and unanimous legislative vote, uh, William C. Luna Leo, grand nephew of Kamehameha I, became Hawaii's first of two eventual elected monarchs. And he reigned from 1873 all the way to 1874 because he decided to die a year after he was elected. So like his predecessor, Luna, Le Luna Leo failed to name an heir, probably because he didn't think that he was going to die like a year after he was elected. So everything's thrown up in the air again. Hawaii has to elect another king or queen of Hawaii to fill this royal vacancy. So Queen Emma who was a, the widow of King Kamehameha IV, was nominated to become, you know, queen of the island, as well as David uh, Kalakaua. In 1874, Kalakaua, who was uh, was elected as the, the, the second elected king of Hawaii, but without the ceremonial popular vote of the previous king. The choice of the legislature was controversial, and U.S. and British troops were called upon to suppress the rioting by... Queen Emma supporters. It's it's a whole deal. It's very uh very reality TV esque. Queen Emma has her own people, uh, and being the widow of a former king gives her a pretty strong standing and pretty strong you know campaign notice to say, hey, I can be, I can be the queen of these islands. I was already involved with one of the kings of these islands. This should be easy to me. This other guy says, you know what, I'm gonna be king, and people are like, yeah, dude, you can be king, and she's pissed off and. It becomes a thing where the Hawaiians are starting to call in uh, foreign favors to try to, you know, stamp everything down and, and tell people to stop, you know, freaking the fuck out about the situation. This should, you know, effectively tell you how poorly the kingdom of Hawaii is doing. And it should be, you know, the writing on the wall for people to say that this kingdom may be coming up to some sort of crisis. This begins to manifest itself in something called the Bayonet Constitution of 1887, which is a constitution drafted by Lauren Thurston, uh, Minister of the Interior under uh, the, the newly elected king. And it basically was a new constitution given to the new king at bayonet point, so to speak. An armed 3,000-person militia comes to the door and says, hey... Uh, you're going to sign this fucking new constitution or we're going to get rid of you. And he's got really no choice but to do so. The document then creates a constitutional monarch monarchy that is very similar to the United Kingdom's, which basically strips 
the king of most of his personal authority and empowers the legislature and establishing cabinet government to actually make all the rules. This is very much how the United Kingdom these days works. The Queen of England currently doesn't really hold any actual, you know, power. I mean, in all technicalities, she kind of does, but she kind of doesn't. It's very weird and complicated. But for the most part, the rules are made and done by the houses of uh, parliament, not by the monarch. And this is what they wanted to do with the the so-called bayonet constitution that really wanted to just transfer power all from the monarch down to the people um, in positions of power. Now, it wasn't like, hey, we're stripping power from the king and giving it to the, the common man. This is not at all what that was. This is more like we're taking power from the king, and instead of one person being powerful, like a couple hundred are going to be powerful, and they're going to make all the rules. It's really kind of kind of not anything good for those uh, in the, the common citizenry at all. And in fact, uh, this new bayonet constitution increased the value of property a, a citizen must own to be eligible to vote, and so only the rich people could ever really vote anymore going forward. It also denied voting rights to Asians who had compromised a large proportion of the population, and some of whom who had become naturalized ended up losing their voting rights that they previously enjoyed. Eventually, um, King Akalakuao, he dies, and in 1891, his sister, Lili Ukulani, takes the throne and will, as we're about to talk about, become the very final monarch of the Kingdom of Hawaii. She comes to power in 1891 during this massive economic crisis, precipitated in part by tariffs done by President McKinley of the United States. She rescinds the Reciprocity Treaty of 1875, and the, the new tariff sort of eliminates the previous advantage of Hawaiian exporters uh, enjoying in their trade to the U.S. markets. A ton of Hawaiian businesses and citizens were feeling the pressures of the loss of revenue, so uh, the new queen proposes a lottery and opium licensing to bring in additional revenue for the government. Her ministers and closest friends tried to dissuade her from pursuing the bills, and these controversial proposals were used against her in this very looming constitutional crisis. The, the end is near. The writing on the wall for the Kingdom of Hawaii is happening, um, partially because over the course of time, power gets moved from the, the common folk, the natives of Hawaii, to the elite of Hawaii, a lot of whom are foreigners to begin with. And step by step, decade by decade, year by year, this changes the, the, the very fabric of the, the kingdom of Hawaii and is eventually you know, putting it upon this you know, house of cards that is very difficult to stay steady, very easy to crumble. This then leads to the interesting second half of the podcast talking about the overthrow of the kingdom of Hawaii. This begins in 1893 with a coup d'etat against the queen on Oahu by foreign residents residing in Honolulu, most of whom were subjects of the United States. They were citizens of the United States and they are ones, they are the ones who precipitated this overthrow, this rebellion on the islands of the United States, and we're going to become the forces that that basically go and overthrow the monarchy of the sovereign. Remember, this is a sovereign nation recognized by others, yet there is an overthrow going on with foreigners on the inside of Hawaii making it happen so that the kingdom is about to crumble. This revolution was started by and typically ran through by Lauren Thurston, who we mentioned a little bit earlier. He, at the time, was a Hawaiian subject and former minister of the interior who was the grandson of American missionaries, like we said. And he and others, um, Henry Cooper being uh, another man, uh, uh, an American lawyer living in Hawaii, helped to spur on the, the, the overthrow, the coup d'etat that would take out of power Queen Liliuokalani. So they derived their support primarily from the American and European businesses that uh, and the and the, and those who you know are part of those businesses that resided on the Hawaiian Islands 
and other supporters of the Reform Party of the Hawaiian Kingdom. Most of the leaders of the Committee of Safety that deposed the Queen were United States and European citizens who were also subjects of the Kingdom of Hawaii. They included legislators, government officers, and a Supreme Court Justice of the Hawaiian Kingdom. All of these people, subjects of the Sovereign Kingdom of Hawaii, decided to say fuck it and overthrow the Sovereign Kingdom of Hawaii. On January the 16th, the Marshal of the Kingdom, Charles B. Wilson, was tipped off by detectives to the imminent planned coup d'etat. Wilson requests warrants to arrest the 13-member council of the Committee of Safety who are going to be committing this coup d'etat and wanted to put the kingdom under martial law. Because the members had strong political ties with the United States government minister, John Stevens, the requests were repeatedly denied by Attorney General Arthur P. Peterson and the Queen's cabinet, fearing if approved, the arrest would then escalate the situation and make it its own sort of situation. After a failed negotiation with Thurston, Wilson began to collect his men for the confrontation that was readily approaching. Wilson and captain of the Royal House Guard, Royal Household Guard, excuse me, had rallied a force of nearly 500 men who were kept at hand to protect the Queen. The, the events then began on January the 17th of 1893 when John Good, a revolutionist, shot another uh, native policeman who was trying to stop a wagon carrying weapons to the Honolulu Rifles being the Honolulu Rifles is an organization, uh, a paramilitary wing of the Committee of Safety. So you got the Committee of Safety who wants to overthrow. They arm a bunch of dudes, call themselves the Honolulu Rifles, and they're going to be like the, the force, so to speak, that they use to depose the queen. A native policeman stops this wagon trying to carry weapons. He is shot and everything starts to go crazy. The Committee of Safety fears the shooting would bring the government forces to rout out the conspirators and stop the overthrow before it could begin. So they then went in ahead and just initiated the overthrow right away by organizing 1,500 men, you know, the Honolulu Rifles, uh, under their leadership and going ahead and marching to the palace, awaiting the Queen's response. As these events were unfolding, the Committee of Safety expressed concern for the safety and property of American residents in Honolulu because, of course, you do. That's a very classic, <clears throat> excuse me, a classic way to sort of push off what you're what you're doing. You're coming to depose the queen. You're coming to do a coup d'etat and get rid of her. And what do you do? Saying, oh, man, we're just really scared for the we're really scared for the safety of all these Americans and stuff living in Honolulu. We're just doing this because we're afraid that uh, our own American citizens are going to really take a beating. Uh, you know, from from the, the the tyrannical Hawaiian, you know, Hawaiian queen. So they use this sort of as a front and march to the palace and begin the the overthrow and the the formal coup d'etat of of the queen. This revolution, so to speak, this coup d'etat is not just a local thing done by United States citizens that decided they just wanted to take over a country. This overthrow was also supported by the United States government itself in the form of Minister John Stevens, who we mentioned before. He called upon the United States Navy to send an invasion force to help them out, which came ashore at the request of you know him and the rest of the conspirators. Advised about supposed threats to non-combatant American lives and property, you know, the lie, the Committee of Safety and Stevens obliged their request and summoned a company of uniformed U.S. Marines from the USS Boston and 162 sailors to land on the kingdom under orders of neutrality and take positions at the U.S. Legation Consulate and Arian Hall in the afternoon of January 16th. The overthrow which is postulated by those uh, in the Honolulu Rifles, the Committee of Safety, and pretty much by the behest of the United States government, uh, leaves the Queen imprisoned in uh, Iolani Palace under house arrest. The United States sailors and Marines did not enter the palace grounds or take over any villain, uh, buildings excuse me, and never fired a shot but their presence served as, uh, effectively in intimidating these royalist defenders that had come to defend the queen. Uh, according to the Queen's book, which was uh, a book written uh, by the queen at the time, talking about the, the events of this going on, uh, her friend and minister came by and told her, hey, you know, 
they came by and told me that they had come on a painful duty that the opposition party, these people coming in, had requested that I should abdicate the throne. This is basically what she heard before all this shit started going down as United States troops were landing on her shore as as people who were subjects of the king and queen of Hawaii were were overthrowing her own power. Foreigners, not native Hawaiians, foreigners were taking power away from the Hawaiians and giving it to the, those on the island who wanted to form a new government. Now, very fortunately, immediate annexation was prevented by President Grover Cleveland at the time in a statement which he said, quote, the military demonstration upon the soil of Honolulu was of itself an act of war unless made either with the consent of the government of Hawaii or for the bona fide purpose of protecting the imperiled lives and property of citizens of the United States. But there is no pretense of any such consent on the part of the government of the Queen. The existing government, instead of requesting the presence of an armed force, protested against it. There is as little basis for the pre for the pretense that forces were landed for the security of American life and property. If so, they would have been stationed in the vicinity of such property and so as to protect it instead of uh, at a distance and so as to command the Hawaiian government building and palace. When these armed men were landed, the city of Honolulu was in its customary, orderly, and peaceful condition, unquote. So even the president of the fucking United States was like, what the hell are we doing? This is This is not what we intended. So you can tell that this overthrow of the of the Hawaiian Islands was done kind of unlawfully when you when you when it comes down to it. Uh, John Stevens basically calling in a favor of, of the USS Boston and ship to come ashore, you know, under the pretense saying, hey, American lives are at stake. You got to come and help us like American lives are in danger. You have to come land and help protect us. Grover Cleveland, among others, sees straight through that bullshit and just says there's there's no reason to have done any of the shit that we just did, we you, the, the 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 troops came to Hawaii and found nothing going on, nothing crazy, orderly and peaceful condition of the city of Honolulu. You know, this is this is not we are not annexing Hawaii. This is not a a formal you know takeover of the sovereign kingdom of Hawaii because, as he says in the first sentence, that would be an act of war. Nevertheless, in 1894, the new republic of Hawaii was declared by the same parties that had established the prov provisional government, people like Lauren Thurston, who had taken over the Kingdom of Hawaii and be and you know made the Republic of Hawaii. Of course, the deposed queen was never ever going to declare, you know, this 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 new Republic of Hawaii as legitimate. And she yields a statement on uh, January 17th of 1893 protesting the overthrow. She says, quote, I, Lili Uakalani, by the grace of God and under the constitution of the Hawaiian kingdom, queen, do hereby solemnly protest against any and all acts done against myself and the constitutional government of the Hawaiian kingdom by certain persons, as she you know, talked about the, the Committee of Safety, claiming to have established a provisional government of and for this kingdom, that I yield to the superior force of the United States of America, whose minister, His Excellency John L. Stevens, has caused the United States troops to be landed at Honolulu and declared that he would support the provisional government. Now, to avoid any collision of armed forces and perhaps the loss of life, I do this under protest and impelled by said force, yield my authority until such time as the government of the United States shall, upon facts being presented to it, undo the action of its representatives and reinstate me in the authority which I claim as the constitutional sovereign of the Hawaiian Islands. A big giant middle finger to the United States from the Queen of Hawaii saying, hey, the only reason I'm going along with this is because I don't want these assholes with guns to kill a bunch of my people. I'm going to wait patiently while hopefully the United States does the right thing and investigates and finds that this is bullshit and helps me take back my king, my, you know, my, my, my kingdom helps me take back my sovereign nation. I am the constitutional sovereign of the Hawaiian islands, you know, just a basically a gigantic, you know, I can't do shit about it because I don't want to fight you, but you know, fuck you anyway. As we talked about with Grover Cleveland before, he calls for an investigation into the overthrow. This investigation was conducted by former Congressman James Henderson Blount, 
Blount concluded in his report on July the 17th of 1893, quote, the United States diplomatic and military representatives had abused their authority and were responsible for the change in government, unquote. Minister Stevens uh, was recalled and the military commander of forces in Hawaii was forced to resign his commission. President Cleveland stated, substantial wrong has thus been done, which a due regard for our national character as well as the rights of the injured people requires we should endeavor to repair the monarchy. Cleveland further stated in his 1893 State of the Union that upon the facts being uh, upon the facts developed, it seemed to me the only honorable course for our government to pursue was to undo the wrong that had been done by those representing us and to restore as far as practicable the status existing at the time of our forcible intervention. The matter was referred to Cleveland uh, by Cleveland to Congress on December the 18th of 1893 after the Queen had refused to accept amnesty for the traitors as a condition for reinstatement. Hawaii President Sanford Dole was presented a demand for reinstatement by Minister Willis, who had not realized Cleveland had already sent the matter to Congress. Uh, Dole flatly refused Cleveland's demands to reinstate the Queen. This Dole is the you know president of the new quote-unquote Republic of Hawaii, saying, fuck you, I have power now, and I'm not going to give it up. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee, chaired by Senator John Tyler Morgan and, comp and composed mostly of senators in favor of annexation, initiated their own investigation to then discredit Blount's earlier report, the report saying, hey, we fucked up. This, uh, this, this, this Senate Foreign Relations Committee says, hey, we really like the idea of just having Hawaii. We really like the idea of annexing Hawaii, so we're going to do a whole smear campaign and investigation to discredit Blount's earlier report and use pro-annexationist -annex affidavits from Hawaii and testimony provided to the U.S. Senate in D.C. to support our position and make it work. Not surprisingly, the John Tyler Morgan report contradicts the Blount report and exonerated Minister Stevens, the one who was deposed, and U.S. military troops finding them, quote-unquote, not guilty of involvement in the overthrow. Cleveland then became stalled with his earlier efforts to restore the Queen, and they adopted a position of recognition of the so-called Provisional Government and Republic of Hawaii, which followed. So Cleveland and Blount are doing the right thing from the United States' point of view. They were saying, this is bullshit. This never should have happened. We have to restore the sovereignty of this, this nation that you know we basically wrongly took. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee with uh, John Tyler Morgan has other ideas, uh, very much aiming for a United States full-blown annexation of Hawaii and do their best to discredit the Blount report saying, oh, the Hawaiians, you know, this, what what John Stevens and, and Thurston were saying was true. You know, Americans were in danger and we just had to do this. I mean, you know, Hawaii had to be had to be taken over and the Republic of Hawaii had to become something that was, you know, legitimate. Other nations of the world didn't really help all that much because they didn't want to get caught in this kerfuffle. Uh, every government with a Democrat, uh, diplomatic excuse me, presence in Hawaii, except for the United Kingdom, the only ones holding out, recognized the provisional government within 48 hours of the overthrow via their consulates. Countries recognizing the new government included Chile, Austria-Hungary, Mexico, Russia, the Netherlands, uh, Germany, Sweden, Spain, Japan, Italy, Portugal, Denmark, Belgium, China, Peru, and France all recognize the new Republic of Hawaii as the uh, the sovereign state governing those islands. There was a small little uh, Hawaiian counter-revolution in uh, 1895 for four days that began with an attempted uh, coup d'etat of their own to restore the monarchy and included battles between royalists, those who supported the queen, and Republican rebels. Later, after a weapons cache was found on the palace grounds after the attempted rebellion in 1895, Queen Liliuokalani was placed under arrest and tried by a military tribunal of the Republic of Hawaii, convicted of treason and imprisoned in her own home, and then formally on January 24th of 1895, Liliuokalani excuse me, abdicated her throne which formally and finally ended the monarchy of Hawaii. The kingdom of Hawaii at this point is dead. The Republic of Hawaii was pretty much just a gigantic sham of a government in and of itself, with most people being a part of it. You know, as most people who you know were part of this revolution to overthrow the kingdom of Hawaii were you know American citizens and others. 
their entire aim was to make Hawaii a republic and then have Hawaii be annexed formally by the United States itself. Um, Sanford Dole, who we had mentioned before, was the president of the republic, and he very much wanted to campaign for the annexation to the United States. The rationale behind annexation in their eyes included a strong economic component. Hawaiian goods and services exported to the mainland would not be subject to United States tariffs because it would be, you know, a territory and would benefit from domestic bounties uh, if Hawaii was a part of the United States. In 1897, William McKinley uh, is elected and succeeds uh, Grover Cleveland as president of the United States. And a year later, uh, he signs the Newlands Resolution, which provided for the annexation of Hawaii on July the 7th, of 1898. The formal ceremony marking the annexation was held at Ayalani Palace on August 12th of 1898, where uh, the Queen had made her last stand. Almost no Native Hawaiians attended this ceremony, and the few that did on the street were, were wore royalist uh, Iliama blossoms on their hats or in their hair, and on their breasts Hawaiian flags with the motto, My Beloved Flag. Most of the 40,000 Native Hawaiians left on the island, including the Queen and the royal family, shuttered themselves in their homes, protesting what they considered an illegal transaction. When the news of annexation came, it was um, it came bitter than death to me, said the former Queen. Uh, Princess uh, Ka Iluani uh, told the San Francisco Chronicle, it was bad enough to lose the throne, but infinitely worse to have the flag go down. The Hawaiian flag was then lowered for the last time while the Royal Hawaiian Band played the Hawaiian National Anthem and the flag of the United States was then raised as the Hawaiian Islands together with the distant Palmyra Islands and Stewart Islands became the territory of Hawaii, uh, you know, a United States territory much like the territory of uh, Puerto Rico today with a new government established on February 22nd of 1900. Uh, Sanford Dole was appointed as the first governor of this territory, and Iolani Palace served as the capital of the Hawaiian government all the way until 1969. So after that very long and somewhat convoluted train, we see that Captain Cook makes his way to Hawaii, as he calls the Sandwich Islands, introduces the ability for a bunch of foreigners to say, hey, this place exists and it's dope. We're going to it. Foreign people go to Hawaii. Throughout the monarchy that grows over that next 100 years, power is shifted from the common people living on the on the island to the foreign people who have moved in. Power is shifted. Wealth is shifted. Demographics are starting to be shifted. And towards the end of it, some, some Americans with business interest in Hawaii decide it's time to get rid of this kingdom and make it so that we can so we can be annexed by the United States and they do it in most people's eyes as an illegal thing it is it is not a just you know i mean what annexation really ever feels legal right what annexation you know where one party wants to take the shit of another party when does that ever really you know when you think about it when does that ever really feel like a justified thing but especially under uh, uh, under what happened in the, with the Kingdom of Hawaii, it really felt super duper illegal. In fact, very I mean, I guess I should say very recently, no, twenty five years ago, in uh, nineteen ninety three, the uh, the one hundred one hundredth anniversary of the overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii, Congress in the United States passed a resolution which President Bill Clinton signed into law offering an apology to Native Hawaiians on behalf of the United States for its involvement in the overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii. This law is now known as the Apology Resolution. And we will end the show today on that note because the next week's episode, we are going to talk about a grassroots campaign that seeks to restore the sovereignty of the Hawaiian Islands and secede from the United States and restore uh, uh, the sovereignty, so to speak, that was taken from them in 1893 during the overthrow. Guys, thank you so much for listening to this ridiculously dry historical show. Uh, it's been a blast telling you this sort of unknown story as to how Hawaii became part of the United States. You can find the podcast anywhere podcasts can be found. 
You can find me on Twitter at Kyle Steinhauser and the show's Twitter at The Couch Pod. Search Knowledge from the Couch Podcast on Facebook to find us there. Email the show, knowledgecouch at gmail.com if you'd like. Go visit my Patreon page, patreon.com slash Kyle has a podcast, and go contribute some money to me, even if it's a dollar a month, so that I can help continue to run this show. Guys, until next week when we talk about the grassroots uh, sovereignty for Hawaii effort, until that time, you guys, live long and prosper. Prosper.